ever come second place in something? It's not a great feeling. Of course, you prepared, you tried, you, know, you kind of failed, but second place, it ain't half bad. Just try telling that to some MMA fighters, though, who also happen to be some of the most competitive athletes in the world. If you can't relate to that feeling, well, how about the exact moment where you're one hit away from beating that boss on Dark Souls and then you get completely wiped out from nowhere and have to start all over again? Same thing, right? Well, there's been plenty of times in MMA where fighters have looked seconds away from fulfilling their dreams, capturing a world title, becoming number one, and then all of a sudden it slipped through their fingers. Now, there's been a lot of close contests and split decisions when it comes to challengers trying to claim UFC gold, but today we are taking a look at 10 fighters who in a blink of an eye could have been world champion, where they had a fight-ending opportunity to change history forever. I'm Balian from MMA On Point, and this is 10 Razor Close Near UFC Championship Wins. Number 10, Carlos Condit. The natural-born killer definitely deserves his own anime show, where he's some assassin for hire using only his bare hands to clean up the criminal underworld and all the bad guys always end up getting spinning elbowed or kneed into oblivion. Condit's always been a fan favorite, apart from when he followed Greg Jackson's game plan to beat Nick Diaz. Yeah, the fan base didn't thank him for that one, but it was that fight that actually got him an interim title and a shot against George St. Pierre, who was at the height of his welterweight divisional dominance. It was an interesting matchup on paper. Carlos had proven to everyone who was dangerous on the feet and that he had an arsenal of weapons bigger than the loading room in the Matrix. The fight kind of went how everyone expected. Great exchanges on the feet, Condit throwing every kick in his playbook, and GSP committing to, yeah, taking Condit down and just neutralizing him on the ground. Round three started. It looked like we had a good fight on our hands. 30 seconds later, Condit threw a cheeky UFC 4 meta 1-2 head kick and caught GSP flush, which was pretty much the first time we'd seen him in serious danger since, well, he's lost to Matt Serra. The crowd and the commentary team started freaking out. Condit took top position and started unloading shots, trying to get the fight stopped, but GSP did a great job staying active. Carl stayed in top position and kept slicing away but 60 seconds later condit was on his back again and the reign of saint pierre continued number nine alistair overeem so many MMA fans were excited about the Ream once he arrived in the UFC. He was on an 11 fight unbeaten streak and then he smashed out Brock Lesnar in his debut. But for whatever reason, he seemed oddly complacent in his next two fights against Bigfoot and Travis Brown and seeing where both their careers went a few years later, well, it's kind of hard to imagine them beating Overeem back then. He kind of played with his food and then got slept. That set his title opportunity back a few years, but he changed camps to Jackson Wink and won four in a row and then they booked him against the new champion Stipe Miocic, who defended the title in his hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. There's lots of pressure for the defending champ. Overeem was of course booed the shit out of during the walkout and announcement, but he didn't let that phase him and quite possibly took advantage of any lingering nerves Stipe had and he dropped a straight left on his chin one minute into the contest that honestly seemed to put him out, at least for a few seconds. Shit man, Overeem has won every belt there is apart from the UFC gold. When Stipe dropped to the canvas, you could see a lifetime of work come to fruition and flash before your eyes like an 80s movie montage. Overeem slapped on his guillotine, a choke that he has seven wins with, and Stipe tapped. I'm kidding. Of course, that's what Overeem would go on to say in his post-fight interview after he'd just been viciously TKO'd. I got him in a guillotine choke, and I cleared himself to tap. Stipe didn't actually tap. He survived and got his revenge at the end of the first round. That was Alistair's only shot at UFC gold, and if you ask him, he should already be champion. Number 8. Frank Trigg I don't think it's fair to just list Frank Trigg in this entry, as let's face it, he has to give a shout out to referee Mario Yamasaki, who let the fight continue after Trigg had crushed the crown jewels of then welterweight champion Matt Hughes. The two men had already fought at UFC 45, where Matt subbed Frank in the first round, and due to a lot of shit talk, the rematch was pretty anticipated. 60 seconds in, and they were against the fence, and Frank lifted a cheeky knee into Matt's ball sack. Mario even said, watch the knees, so he obviously saw what happened. He also saw Matt holding his crotch and stumbling backwards afterwards, but didn't want to stop the action, apparently, for 
some reason. This basically gave Trig free reign to get some revenge and also try and grab the belt. After he blitzed Matt to the canvas and started to drop fight ending ground and pound like some heavy shots, Matt rolled and Trig began hunting the rear naked choke. Goldberg was right when he said Matt's in survival mode as his face turned redder than the in-season beats at Shroot Farms. But of course, in one of the most renowned comebacks of all time, Matt broke free, picked up Trig, slammed him into the canvas, elbowed him into oblivion and then rear naked choked him. It was a pretty definitive end to a fight that, well, looked like we would see a new champion. Trig never came close to winning a UFC title again. In fact, he only had one more fight before the UFC dropped him. Still, he was one watermelon squeeze away from becoming a world champion. Number seven, Liz Carmouche. Who remembers Rousey Mania? Yeah, that was a thing. Also very much a product of its time. I mean, we are talking about going from the most recognizable combat athlete at the time to almost complete obscurity. I mean, that's not true. People still know who she is, but yeah, it's just not even comparable. But it almost didn't even happen. All thanks to the goal Rilla, Liz Carmouche. Dana announced Ronda was the first champion to sign with the UFC and had already strapped the woman's 135 pound title on her before she even stepped through the doors. And it's not often that a champion is crowned before joining the organization, but it has happened before. But the first female title fight happened at UFC 157. At this point, Ronda had won all her fights in the first round by armbar. There had been a multitude of hype packages and promos before the fight, and I can only imagine the pressure to repeat those performances must have been insane, especially when her desperation to do so led to Liz being on her back just 40 seconds into the fight. When Ronda stood up with Carmouche clinging to her, I remember doing my best Nelson impression at the irony of what was about to occur. All this hype and bravado, and she's going to get choked out in less than a minute? Liz was seriously cranking on her neck. She even dis Dislocated Ronda's jaw, but Rousey didn't tap, slammed her on the mat, and with 10 seconds left in the first round, got her famous armbar. I love a good comedy of errors, not just at the Globe Theatre, and I was ready to sustain some satirical laughter at this one. Carmouche could have been our first female champion, Rousey mania almost never happened, and Dana might have quit women's MMA on the spot. Number 6. Michael Chandler after Chandler called his shot and blasted through Dan Hooker, I was ready to believe anything this man said. Helped, of course, by his aura of confidence and the fact the man lives that warrior lifestyle of endless productivity, schedule optimization, and unwavering belief in himself. He was fighting Oliveira, though, who's become one of the most well-rounded and, let's face it, dangerous men to ever step inside the octagon. At UFC 262, the cage closed, and these two men went at it like hungry hippos, biting at every opportunity to finish the fight. After surviving the early submission threat, Mike waded forward and just kept putting it on Charles. Chandler had talked often about his name being included in the discussion of the best lightweights in the world when he was outside of the UFC. Now he was here. I mean, you couldn't fault the man for showing up on the biggest stage. He dropped Oliveira and started battering away with ground and pound, the same fight ending position he had stopped Dan Hooker in after that explosive debut where he promised to put it on any man he stood opposite. I mean, this was literally manifestation taking place before our eyes. Dude had hung around in the sport for a decade, finally made his mood for the UFC, had a spectacular debut, called his shot and was about to be the new champion. But crafty as ever, Charles survived using some sick evasive head movement. The fight then carried on at its frenetic pace until Charles stopped Chandler in the second round. I don't think it could have been any closer for Iron Mike and what an achievement it would have been for his career. Number five, Tim Elliott. Well, this one was almost like an episode of The Twilight Zone. 125-pound champion Demetrius Johnson had basically cleaned out his division twice, and the UFC weren't really sure what to do with him. I mean, the talk of shutting down 125 has been going around for years. Instead, they decided to do something a little special and held a series of the Ultimate Fighter with 125-pound champions from across the globe and different organizations, with the winner getting a free shot in the UFC against the champion. I think if you'd have done this at any other weight class, people might have actually given a shit. But then again, maybe not. But for whatever reason, 125 has always just been 
been overlooked. I mean, these days it's definitely heating up, but back then it had basically been the same for five years. Anyway, Tim Elliott was on the show, which to me at least was a little surprising. He'd been in the UFC just one year ago and now suddenly has gone on a three-fight winning streak, capturing and defending the Titan FC Flyweight Championship. Pretty impressive stuff. Anyway, he won the show and fought DJ and people kind of just expected the same thing we'd seen for the last five years. Domination. In 30 seconds, the fight was on the mat and there were some awesome scrambles and Tim eventually dropped down, snagging up a guillotine. Oh shit, I thought. They really made a TV show without telling the champion so they could cough out a random contender for him to face and he's going to win? This is going to be the story of the downfall of Mighty Mouse after all this dominance? And man, that thing was tight. Tim already had guillotine finishes whilst being on the show. He even got one from side control. DJ slips out, but Elliot wrapped up a dance and that feeling you're about to witness something historic rose inside you like a frothing bottle of UFC champagne. But DJ escaped that too and eventually won a decision. Out of all the people DJ fought over the years, I don't think many expected Tim to be the one to take the title, but he came a damn sight closer than anyone else had at that point. Number four, Dan Henderson. It was truly a gift from the MMA gods when Dan Henderson was given a UFC title shot 20 years into his cage fighting career. The man was freaking 46 years old and had just about every strap in his cabinet apart from the shiny gold UFC one. And it's not like he hadn't had these opportunities. He came into the UFC as a two-time pride champ, so he fought for both titles. He lost to Rampage at UFC 75 for the light heavyweight belt, and then he lost to Anderson Silva the following year for the middleweight title. Then he lost his shot against John Jones when it got thrown out the window after the UFC 151 cancellation aftermath and well, the three straight losses that followed after that. At least he was coming off a win when he fought Mike Bisping at UFC 204 for the middleweight belt, although it hadn't exactly been an inspiring performance over a top-level opponent. Still, I was probably one of the only people in the I-don't-really-care category. Being that I am, you know, English, the prospect of a title defense that Bisping should win wasn't exactly a bad thing. Gave him a chance for revenge after getting hit with quite possibly the greatest KO of all time, and I've always had a soft spot for Hendo, so seeing him get one more shot, fuck it, I was pretty happy. Again, yeah, I know I was in the mind for this one. Still, it was clear what happened the first time. Hendo had dropped the H-bomb. Bisping had been circling into it. This time, don't do that. Easy peasy. But you know, even the shuffling of Dan Henderson can be deceiving, as is his speed with that torpedo of a punch, and with about 30 seconds left in the first round, he only bloody landed it again, and even threw the same diving punch to follow Mike to the canvas, where an absolute tirade of ground and pound followed as the frustration of three failed title attempts was unloaded into Mike's face. He barely survived, but with one minute left in the second round, Dan uncorked another hellacious right hand that sent him crashing to the canvas again. Ultimately, Mike won a very close decision. That was Henderson's last MMA fight of his career. Kind of tough for me as I'm a fan of both, but Hendo almost made history repeat itself, and for a 50-fight veteran, it was a spectacular performance. Number three, Gray Maynard. The 10-0 title-challenging version of Gray Maynard was pretty fucking scary. Not only did he have this incredibly dominant wrestling game, but heavy, heavy hands, and of course, being undefeated will just fill you with that confidence that you can just run through brick walls. That and the fact the man he was fighting, Frankie Edgar, well, he'd already beaten him back in 2008, so I'm sure in his mind, this fight was already won. Fans weren't exactly high on Frankie either. I mean, yeah, he did beat BJ, but he really had come out of nowhere, was kind of undersized for the division, and hadn't really proved himself yet. Well, all that was about to change. After the bell rang at you, UFC 125, Maynard charged Edgar with all the enthusiasm of a starving lion. He waited for a minute or so, but looped a long lead hook out there that dropped Frankie, and then he just started gunslinging and hip-firing his hands like he was a Kimboing in Warzone. The barrage continued, and honestly, at any moment, it looked like the next shot would put Frankie out. He was scrambling around on the mat like he was looking for drop change, and at one point, Gray was literally standing behind Frankie, punching him in the side of the head. He dropped Frankie three times in that first round, and I'm sure he thought on multiple occasions, I'm about to be the champion. But Edgar survived 
they went to a draw and in the rematch the same thing damn near happened again but this time Frankie finished off Gray who unfortunately went on a massive losing streak after this and never got close to fighting for a title again but at UFC 125 heck even if it had been a different referee he could have been a UFC champion. Number two Shane Carwin both Shane Carwin and his opponent at UFC 116 Brock Lesnar featured in our scariest heavyweights of all time list and for pretty good fucking reasons seeing as they're both behemoths capable of pounding to dust the skull of any regular sized human. Shane had had an undefeated run through the world of MMA ending everyone in the first round sometimes with little to no effort at all. He had all the components that would make up a UFC champion but Brock Lesnar also existed in this era and I was damned if I knew what was going to happen when these two finally got locked in a cage. The answer was pain lots of pain. It took about 60 seconds for Shane to land a clean shot, a nice uppercut, and from here he stirred up a hurricane of punishment that would have had Helen Hunt concerned. It was a fucking tirade of ground and pound, one shot normally being enough to put out most men, but for some reason Josh Rosenthal just looked on over as again and again the microwave-sized fists of Carwin slammed into Lesnar's equally large noggin. For two straight minutes Brock was under constant assault without so much as a hip escape or a shrimp to defend himself. Any other ref, except maybe Yamasaki, or maybe actually even Mazagar now that I think about it, they would probably have stopped that fight. But Rosenthal didn't. Shane was super gassed and Brock sunk in an arm triangle for the win. Shane only fought once more in a title eliminator against JDS that he lost. He won the interim title against Frank Mir back at UFC 111, but was maybe two clean punches away from being a world champion. Number one, Brian Ortega. If Wolverine's adamantium skeleton is real, I'm willing to bet some of that shit is inside Brian Ortega. Aside from being one of the best black belts to ever grace the octagon, the dude is made of something special. He's shown an ability to absorb torrents of punishment and still push forward and look for the victory. And hey, when you have a Jits game as good as his, I'm, I'm not surprised. And at any moment, if he gets the right position, or if you give him an inch of breathing room on the mat, he can take your soul. He certainly came up short against Max Holloway in a big way when he first fought for the title at UFC 231, but after a season of shit talk on the ultimate fire, he and new champion Alexander Volkanovsky fought at UFC 266. Brian had showed some improvements in his striking, but Alex is living in the future with his setups and feints, but the jiu-jitsu remained an X-factor for the entire fight, which was pretty damn competitive. Sega was really wearing the damage, though, by the midpoint of the fight, and it looked like the champion was ready to start pouring it on. But he caught a kick, dropped Alex with a punch, and landed in full mount with one of the tightest guillotines I have ever seen. He sat super high up on Alex's chest, laced up his legs with his own, and began squeezing like he was trying to force the last drops of toothpaste out of Volk's head. In front of millions, we saw the range of emotions flash across Alex's face, knowing he was literally seconds from losing everything he'd worked for for his entire life. It was off. Fuck, I'm about to lose the belt deep. He thrashed, but that shit was in. BJJ Black Belt, T-City, and now world champion. But Volk refused to tap. 20 seconds later, Brian lost his grip. But the drama wasn't over. Another minute passed, and Brian threw up his patented, trademarked, Henna Gracie-approved triangle. And for another 20 seconds, it looked like finally Ortega would be called the champion. But what do you know? Alex is one tough Aussie, and he stocked that one out too. It was a crazy round and a crazy fight. Ortega got dismantled after that, but hey, kept fighting anyway. And I expect he'll probably get another title shot a goal before his career is all said and done. A big shout out to Luke Taylor for editing this video. You can find him and some of his amazing artwork on Twitter at cool2me underscore. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. 
Thank you very much for watching everyone today. Please go ahead and like and subscribe if you did enjoy the content. We upload at least three videos every week for your viewing pleasure. Go ahead and leave a comment below if you want to join in the discussion and follow us on Twitter at MMA on Point and myself at Balian underscore plays. You can now jump in and join the community discord as well if you want to continue the discussion further and I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. I'll see you in the next one.